Good morning, Sun West. Uh, welcome back again to Church at Home. Glad you can join us wherever you are, and uh, hope uh, that you are staying encouraged and connected uh, throughout the season. And we have many people that have joined in on groups uh, or starting point classes on Tuesday evenings uh, or hearing God classes that are coming up. Uh, and those are just other ways of continuing to connect together as a community uh, at this time. And so we're going to jump right in again this morning, continuing in the Gospel of Mark. And as you know, the Gospel of Mark was written to a church that was uh, going through uh, persecution, going through trouble, that needed encouragement, uh, that, that needed to be lifted up. And it's a beautiful book for us to be looking at at this time uh, in history for us as well. Uh, and so I want to start with a quote that you've probably heard many times before. Maybe you've said it. And the quote goes like this. The safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. The safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. Is that really true? Is that true? I've titled this sermon, The Safest Place to Be, with a question mark, uh, because I think in Mark we learn that this is, in fact, not true. Uh, Being in the center of God's will is not the safest place to be. In fact, it might be the most dangerous place to be. And that is the question we're going to explore this morning in Mark chapter 6. We're going to begin at verse 1, but we're going to focus on uh, uh, the latter part of Mark chapter 6. But just to give a bit of a context again, uh, Jesus has gone back and forth over that sea from Jewish territory to Gentile territory um, as we chatted last week. And now he's moving back to his hometown of Nazareth, which is right here. And so he comes back to his hometown of Nazareth, which I'll mention in a second. And then from here, he's kind of journeying around the other small villages around Nazareth. Here's the outline of Mark chapter 6. You can see this is where we're going. Uh, I'm going to talk very briefly about the first six verses, and then we're going to focus on the rest of six. Um, So Jesus goes home to Nazareth, and they took offense at him, is what it says. And a, a prophet is not without honor in his hometown. Jesus says this because people there didn't accept him, probably because he grew up there. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience in the places that you grew up or the people that know you best. Sometimes those are the people that you have the most trouble convincing of who you actually are because they, they know you from when you were a kid. They know you from maybe mistakes that you've made. And so they kind of put you in a box. And Jesus is no different. He grew up in his hometown. People had put him in the box as the carpenter's son, uh, whatever uh, you know, stories he might have lived out in his childhood and said, you know, that's who you are. And he comes back as an adult in, in his ministry and people had a hard time accepting who he was. And so it says, he says, uh, he quotes, a prophet is not without honor in his hometown. And it says that he could uh, only do a few things there. He, he, he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them and he marveled at their unbelief. And so it's important that we know that faith does not heal people. Uh, Even though faith is correlated to healing throughout Mark and the other Gospels, uh, faith is not what heals people. Faith rather acts as a conduit for God to work. Uh, Faith does appear to be a part of God's activity, uh, but only in the way like we've talked about that that faith is our response to God, is putting our trust in God. And so as we trust Him, it actually uh, gives God uh, the invitation to be at work in our lives. Um, so God is invited and God acts when he's invited and that's the role that faith plays. Jesus is not bound by faith. I mean, he, he does things where there's little faith, where there's lots of faith. 
Uh, but faith does, in some ways, give the channel or the opportunity for God to move into our lives uh, and be active uh, because we've invited him there. As we've said, faith literally means to trust, right? So as we trust Jesus, as we, as we move towards him, maybe people were only healed uh, a little bit in his hometown because uh, only a few people actually took the action of coming to Jesus. Maybe they took the action of asking Jesus. Faith can mean that. Faith can mean actively responding, pursuing. Uh, it, it's, it's the word that is an action word. So uh, we know that people did not respond to Jesus in his hometown the way they're responding to him in other places. And because of that, uh, he was limited uh, in what he, was, what he did in his hometown. So the next section, uh, that's kind of just the intro, but the next section is where I want to focus. And we're going to look at another sandwich that Mark creates. So last week I talked about the Markin sandwich. Uh, where Mark takes a story and puts it within another story. He does that in multiple places. And here's another spot uh, that he does that. So the Mark and Sandwich is outlined like this. Uh, there's a picture of a sandwich. And I don't know if, if you eat many sandwiches. I used to love sandwiches. When I was a, a teenager, there was a place in my hometown called Laird's Larder. Uh, great place, great name for a restaurant, Laird's Larder. And so I would go in there and you would, you would customize your sandwich. You put all the pieces that you wanted in. And uh, the bread was amazing. Uh, but the, the piece that made the sandwich was uh, the, the meat that you chose to put in the middle of it. It was, it, it was what made the sandwich. And they had a plethora of different meat options there. And so you get these huge sandwiches. That, uh, and, and I love trying out the different kinds of meats. And so what's true of a of a real life sandwich is true of also of the Markin sandwiches. Uh, that the bread, even though that's, you need it to make the sandwich, the significance or what makes that sandwich unique is found in the middle. It's what you choose to put in the center. And so we're going to start by looking at the bread pieces, the beginning and the end of the sandwich, and then we're going to zero in uh, on the middle, on the meat of Mark's sandwich and trying to understand what he's trying to say to us uh, at this point in his gospel. So, the bread. Let's read this. Uh, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, uh, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And so, we can see here that the disciples are called, that they're organized, that they're authorized and Jesus gives them instructions. So they're called, they are organized, and then they're authorized with instructions uh, to move forward in the mission that Jesus has for them. In verse 10, we see that he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And this is kind of a weird uh, line or weird, weird verse here. Um, but if we understand in the context, we can see what Jesus is saying here. In the Old Testament, when people were, uh, were in Gentile lands, non-Jewish lands, and they would come back to the Holy Land, they would shake off the dust from their feet. As they're going from unclean territory into clean territory, they would shake off the dust of their feet uh, from unholy land to holy land. And we can see here that Jesus is starting to reverse the script of this a little bit. Uh, that he's saying that there's no geographical place or there's no ethnic people that has, uh, has sole um, control over what is holy and, that, and what is not, over what is chosen and what is not. Uh, God's people, God's place can actually be anywhere 
where the gospel is accepted, where Jesus is actually accepted as king. And so the disciples are like starting this movement, this change, uh, where, the, where God's kingdom is no longer going to be defined geographically or ethnically, but it's going to be defined by those whose hearts have yielded to God himself. And for those who are able to yield their hearts, to bend their knee towards Jesus, towards God, towards his kingdom, they are part of that kingdom. And so uh, this, is a, this is a twist in the theology of the Jewish people. And God's kingdom doesn't know any boundaries. And we've seen that over and over again in the book of Mark. Jesus saying here, there's no geography, there's no ethnicity that makes someone in or out, but it is how they respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And, and so we, we recognize here that, that Mark is summarizing the ministry of Jesus up until this point in Mark. If you look at the statement right here and you think of the last five chapters of Mark that we've gone through together, we could summarize it with, that, with Jesus calling people to repent, to, to come to believe in him, to follow him, uh, and then casting out demons and healing many. That has marked the ministry of Jesus up until this point. And so he sends the disciples to go and do what he himself was doing. Discipleship is not just about following it's not just about uh, being enamored with the miracles that Jesus is doing. It's not just about um, watching God do really, really cool things. It's actually about imitating Jesus. And there's a point here where the disciples are now going out from the watch of Jesus, from being directly behind him to going out on their own and acting as Jesus acted and ministering in the way that Jesus ministered in the world uh, that they were a part of. And so this is a risky business. This is courageous business. Uh, and Jesus calls on them not just to be followers, but now to be leaders, uh, not just to be consumers, but to be participants, not just to be spectators, but to get in the game and to play the game. Uh, this is the call of discipleship. So the disciples go, they go out two by two, and that's the beginning of the Mark sandwich. And then we come to the bottom of the Mark sandwich. And this section here uh, that we're going to look, look at is, is at the beginning often of the Jesus feeding the 5,000 miracle, but it actually belongs uh, as part of the previous section, which is where we're putting it here. And so in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus. So after Jesus set them out, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So that's the end of this section. And just with those verses alone, it, it actually tells a consistent story that Jesus you know, calls the disciples to himself. He authorizes them. He organizes them. He instructs them. They go out. They minister in the way that Jesus ministers. And then they come back to Jesus and report everything that they had done. Makes sense. Except Mark interrupts the story with another story. And you'll see that this, the story isn't told in real time if you pay attention to the way that Mark tells it. Uh, he's, he's going back in time and telling a story that has already happened, and the story is about John the Baptist. And so this will look back in time from the narr narration standpoint, and John, uh, and, and we have to ask the question, why was John in prison and why did he die? And Mark's, Mark's telling us, that John was arrested because he confronted Herod on the affair that he was having with, with his brother Philip's wife. Uh, 
Herod wanted to kill John, but John was so popular that Herod was afraid of doing so because that might uh, result in a revolt among John's followers and people that loved John. But at a birthday party, Herod's daughter performed a dance for him that greatly pleased him. And so when we read that, greatly pleased him, we, you know, this is not the good kind of pleasing. This is the evil, inappropriate, dirty kind of pleasing. And so you kind of get a picture of how messed up uh, Herod's family is uh, here in this section. And so Herod made the promise that he would give his daughter whatever she asked for. In a, and so in a plot between his daughter and Herodias, his wife, uh, they asked John... Uh, they asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. So John was in prison, in between prison and the platter. And we can fill in the blanks of the, the story of John uh, from other Gospels. Uh, in fact, the story of John the Baptist is well known in the early church. It, we see it in all of the Gospels, different parts of John the Baptist's story. We also see it in the, in the Jewish historian Josephus, who writes about the story as well. Uh, and so what happened with John, what happened with Herod, was well known in the whole region. And uh, I don't want to make a habit of this going to other Gospels because we want to look at Mark as, uh, as, a, as a unit in and of itself. Uh, but Matthew will actually help fill in some of the blanks of John's story that would have been known uh, to the audience. And so if we look in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, John's question in Matthew 11 is one that we should be asking. So let's, let's look at what he's asking. When Jesus finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in the towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things that the Messiah was doing. So he heard about everything Jesus was doing, so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? This question, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we be looking for someone else, is a great question that we should all be asking. If Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for, then we must leave everything and follow him. But if, if he's not, then we, should, we shouldn't. Yet, this seems to be out of place for John. Because if you remember, what was the sole uh, ministry of John? John's ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus. And we know that in, in Luke's gospel that John knew who Jesus was even when he was in the womb. Even in the fetal position, John was jumping up and down in the belly of his mom because he had met his cousin Jesus uh, through the womb of Mary as well. And so there was a recognition, even in the fetal position, who Jesus was. And then in the ministry of John, which we saw at the beginning of Mark, uh, he, he declares who Jesus is, that Jesus is coming. This is the one you've been waiting for, the, san the sandals of one who, who I'm unworthy to untie. I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. John knows who Jesus is. And so this question seems so out of place. John's in prison. He sends his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one? Are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Or should we be waiting for someone else? An odd question for someone who has given their whole life to prepare for the ministry of Jesus. So what happened? How could John send his disciples with a question like that? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Well, we know what happened. He went to prison. And I think this is true of all of us, that it doesn't matter how sure of something you are, there are certain crossroads that happen in our life that make us doubt the things that we assumed were so certain before. There are certain crises that we hit in our life that make us question everything that we were so certain about before. And John being human, experiences that too. John's given his whole life 
with the certainty of who Jesus was, declaring the way, uh, declaring who Jesus was, preparing the way for Jesus, and in the moment of crisis where his life is, bef- is flashing before him, where he sees his death bearing in on him, he starts to maybe doubt this whole thing that he's given his life to. So Mark chapter 6 is the backdrop to John's question in Matthew 11. John's living between prison and the platter. And we can understand John's angst. Shouldn't Jesus drop everything for me? After all, I have given up my whole life for him. John had always been there for Jesus. Wasn't it time for Jesus to return the favor and come and rescue John? Where was Jesus when John needed him? Maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah after all. So when John received the question from John's disciple, he sent back an interesting response. I'm sorry, when Jesus received the question from John's disciples, he sent back this response. Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Jesus tells him much of what we've already seen in John. Right? And you might think that this is inspiring. You know, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, lep- the lepers are being cured, uh, the, the deaf are hearing, the dead are being raised to life. It, shouldn't this inspire John? Don't worry, John. Every, check out everything that's going on. The kingdom of God is clearly coming. I'm clearly the Messiah. Look at everything that's happening. This is an impressive resume that Jesus gives John. And you think that John would be encouraged. But the problem is that John already knew all of that. John was already aware of all of that. Like, look, go back to this text. It says, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things that the Messiah was doing. The impressive resume, the kingdom coming, wasn't encouraging John. It was discouraging him. The incredible miracles and works of Jesus didn't eliminate John's doubt. They actually fueled them. How could it be that these very things, these very life-giving things that Jesus was doing to help others caused John to lose heart? Well, before we answer that, let's look at two aspects of Jesus' response. Jesus is quoting from two Old Testament texts that are Messianic texts, uh, talking about the coming of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. Uh, first, first one in Isaiah 35 and the second one in Isaiah 61. Uh, Isaiah 35, when he, and when he, the Messiah, comes, he will open the eyes of the blind, unplug the ears of the deaf, the lame will leap like a deer. Isaiah 61, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to reclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. So the report that Jesus sent back to John of all the expectations of what the coming, coming Messiah would do, you know, actually affirms that Jesus is the one. But there's something else going on here. John would have known the expectations of Jesus the Messiah. He would have known the Isaiah passages. It was his life calling, like we said, to proclaim that this Messiah, who Isaiah prophesied about, was actually here in the person of Jesus. So let's look closely. Let's look at what it says in Isaiah compared to what uh, Jesus reports back to John. The blind see. Check. The lame walk, check, says that in Isaiah. The deaf hear, check. The good news is bring preached to the poor, check. But do you notice what's missing? Do you notice what Jesus fails to include from Isaiah? 
You sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to reclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. Hmm. Jesus left that out. Jesus left that part out for John. Which means we should also ask the question, did Jesus include anything else in his response to John that was in addition to what was said in Isaiah? Not just the subtracted subtraction. So Jesus subtracted this, but what did Jesus add? Well, look here. Let's see. Blind see, check. Lame walk, check. You know, the deaf hear, check. Gospel being preached to the poor, check. But this piece here, the dead are raised to life, Jesus added that one. What's Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus ends his message to John with this. God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Why would anyone turn away when Jesus is doing all of this stuff? Why did it bother bother John that Jesus was doing all these messianic acts and healing people, releasing people, freeing people? It's hard to imagine someone coming up to me and saying, you know, too many blind people have been, been getting healed. I'm having a crisis of faith. Or if one more person, if I'm, one more paralyzed person gets up and, walk, and walks, I'm going to walk out of here because I, you know, I don't know if I believe in Jesus. What would Jesus feel like if he had to say, well, well, what, did, what did Jesus say to John to answer John's question? Why was John so upset at what was happening? Why was John so upset at all the good news that was happening and that Jesus was the Messiah? Why did that upset him? It upset him because it wasn't happening to him. That's why he was upset. Jesus says, yes, John, I'm the Messiah. I've done these things. I've done these things for others, but I'm not going to do it for you. I'm not releasing prisoners today. You know, we can see John responding, but Jesus, I'm going to die in this prison. But then Jesus says, don't forget, John, the dead are also being raised. I know that you're expecting the kingdom to come in a certain way. It's still coming. And even if your life is taking from you, I want you to know that that is not the end of the story. So no, I'm not, I'm not releasing prisoners today, but don't worry because the dead are being raised. Now, this isn't mainstream Christian messaging. You know, this isn't the message that, you know, Jesus, you know, follow Jesus, he's going to make your life more comfortable, he's going to make it better, more successful. This isn't often maybe the way the gospel is packaged, but this is the way that the gospel is actually packaged in the book of Mark. And if that response wasn't enough, look how Jesus responds to John after John was put in prison in the gospel of Mark. Earlier on, we read in chapter 1, if you remember, so going back to real time, Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. Where he preached the gospel. Which begs the question, what exactly was the good news for John? Jesus knew John was in prison, but understood that the purpose was not to save John from pain and suffering, but to save him from meaninglessness. To Jesus, John was fulfilling God's purpose for which he was created, and why on earth would Jesus save him from that? So often we take the American dream or the Canadian dream and we superimpose it, we project it onto the gospel of Jesus. And the real challenge with this is that we assume that God wants whatever I want. 
We follow Jesus with this assumption, which leads to an incredible misunderstanding and frustration. And when life doesn't turn out like we hoped or like we think it would, it leads to a faith crisis. Our false expectations on Jesus as Messiah leads us to a faith crisis. And I need to ask the question, is it actually a faith crisis that we've come to? Because maybe the truth is we didn't put our faith or our trust in Jesus in the first place. The Bible calls this idolatry. What do you want? What do I want? It's probably the same thing that John wanted. Safety, comfort, security. But if your primary reason that you left everything to follow Jesus was because he was going to make your life more comfortable, more secure, uh, more safe, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to be led to a crisis. You don't believe me? Well, why don't we take a look at not only John, but all the other disciples that decided, hey, I'm going to leave everything and follow Jesus. Andrew has generally agreed that he was crucified by the Roman governor and that he was bound, not, not nailed to the cross in order that his suffering would be prolonged as he hung there. Bartholomew suffered because his name was Bartholomew. But on top of that, he suffered uh, when he was beaten with rods and afterwards he was beheaded. James, the brother of John, was killed by Herod Agrippa with the sword. James, um, whoa, I got two Jameses there. Um, not the brother of John. James, the brother of Jesus, um, was martyred by, for his faith by the Jews in 62 AD. John likely died of natural causes around 100 AD, but that was only after he spent significant time in prison. It's generally accepted that Matthew suffered martyrdom. However, the type of torture inflicted on him is debated. It wasn't known if he was burned or stoned or beheaded, uh, but he was martyred. Peter is recorded that Peter was actually crucified upside down because he, he thought he was unworthy to be crucified in the same way as his Savior, Jesus. Philip, the nature of Philip's death, we don't know. That's one, you know, We're not sure what happened to Philip. Simon suffered crucifixion after he preached in Samaria. Thomas was condemned to death and led out of the city to a hill and pierced through with spears by four soldiers. So we know that at least 10 out of the 12 apostles died suffering for the unrelenting faith and commitment to follow Jesus. That like John the Baptist, Jesus did not spare them from suffering even though they gave their lives for Jesus. So back to the sandwich. Why on earth would Mark put the story of John the Baptist, even if something happened in the past, in the middle of the story about the disciples going out and coming back. The sending out and returning of the disciples. Why did he put it in the middle? Because he wants his audience then and now to know that following Jesus can lead there. I think it's the same reason why Jesus, when he was healing people in Mark, didn't tell them to go and tell everybody about what I had done. Why? Because if people follow Jesus just because he's a miracle worker, they miss the point. If they just follow Jesus because he works miracles, then they think coming to Jesus means life is going to be healed, everything's going to be better, I'm going to be more successful, I'm going to be safer. Jesus' miracles, Mark uses the word dunamis, uh, the Greek word for that we get the English word dynamite, talking about power. Mark refers to this word because miracles were a demonstration of Jesus' power. Why? Because when we follow Jesus, we need to know that he is more powerful than anything in this world, including the things that we suffer from. Jesus is more powerful than death. Jesus is more powerful than Satan. Jesus is the most powerful, but, but that should give us confidence in the face of suffering. We shouldn't buy into the lie that that means that Jesus will save us from our current suffering. 
They, the miracles were intended for you and I to trust in the power of Jesus no matter what happens in our lives. Mark puts the death of John the Baptist in the middle of this story where he sends the disciples out because he needs us to know and he needs them to know that John is not exempt from suffering, that they're not exempt from suffering, and those who follow him after won't be exempt from suffering, but he has come to call you to a life of purpose, a life of meaning, and one that holds the promise of eternal resurrection life. A guy by the name of Ronald Roheiser said this. He said, In this life, all of our symphonies remain unfinished. He went on to say, We are built for the infinite, the grand canyon without bottom. Because of that, we will, we will, this side of eternity, always be lonely, restless, incomplete, living in torment and the insufficiency of everything attainable. If we don't face the reality of our aching incompleteness, this incompleteness becomes a gnawing restlessness, a bitter center that robs us of delight. When we will start demanding that something or someone, a marriage partner, a sexual partner, an ideal family, uh, having children, making, having a certain achievement, having a vocational goal or a certain job will take our loneliness away, we'll be disappointed. In this life, all of our symphonies remain unfinished. How many of you listening this morning or whenever you're listening, wherever you're listening, feel that this is part of your story, that there's a part of your life that's incomplete. There's a longing that you have that is unfulfilled. There's maybe a suffering you've experienced that you haven't been rescued from. I think we learn that that's supposed to be there. Why? Because we were created for another kingdom. The danger is believing that there is anything in this world that will make those longings go away. And an even, da- even greater danger is the believing that, g- that Jesus came to take away those longings completely. On this side of heaven, you will always be in want. That's because we were created for heaven. On this side of heaven, we will always be in want. We will always have longings because we were created with eternity in our hearts, is what it says in Ecclesiastes. All your dissatisfaction, your hunger, your thirst, your for comfort, for security, safety, belonging, and identity will only find its end in the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus reminds John that he's raising the dead. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is more powerful than anything that life can throw our way. Now let's return to the theme of this sermon, the quote that I started with. The safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. And context is everything. This quote was given by Corey Tenboom. And we find the quote in her diary. Um, Corey's sister Betsy was encouraging her with this hope. But for Corey and Betsy, the promise of safety in the center of God's will was fleshed out in the concentration camps, the Nazi uh, towards the Nazi Holocaust or the Nazi Holocaust uh, the, during the Nazi Holocaust of the Jews. And although Corey lived to tell the story, her sister Betsy would not. And so they could say this that the safest place to be is the center of God's will, but how we actually apply that to our context and the way and the context they were living in were extremely different. Clearly, neither of them concluded that this expression conveyed a belief that God would keep them from suffering and hardship and even death. Betsy's statement was a declaration that to walk in the character of Christ is always the right choice, regardless of the outcome, regardless of your circumstances. It was a statement that acknowledged that at the end of all things, that Jesus will stand victorious and death will not have the final word. That's where the statement comes from. Instead of finding confidence to live as we should, regardless of our circumstances, we have used this statement as a justification to choose the path of least resistance, least difficulty, least sacrifice, least suffering. Instead of concluding 
it best to be wherever God wants us to be, we've decided that wherever it's best for us to be, that's where God wants us. But that's not the gospel, friends. The quote is true only to the extent that we look at our current circumstances from the perspective of heaven and the perspective of Jesus' victory on the other side of death. Actually, God's will for us is less about our comfort and more about our contribution. God would never choose for us safety at the cost of significance. God created you so that your life would count, not so that you could count the days of your life. God calls disciples to follow him, not towards safety, but because we're in a battlefield and this, the kingdom of this world desperately needs the kingdom of God. And when we choose to follow Jesus, it's going to take courage. It's going to mean overcoming fear and it's going to mean facing suffering and even death head on. And sometimes we forget that. And I know this feels like a heavy sermon, but I trust and I hope that it brings us back to what it actually means to follow Jesus and that we can take hope and confidence because of what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. Jesus invites you to follow him, yes. Jesus gives us the full purpose-filled life we were created for, yes. Jesus is victorious over sin and death, yes. But don't be surprised when you find yourself following Jesus in the company of John the Baptist and the other disciples, because after all, the journey that Jesus took was a journey towards the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you called us. We thank you that you've sent us. We thank you that you've given us authority. But Lord, would you save us from ourselves when we project an expectation on you as Messiah that is actually not true? We thank you that you didn't just come to make us safe, but you called us to live significant lives. You didn't call us to live in now, but you called us to live in light of eternity. So I pray, Lord, that we as a church family, that we as a community would live courageous lives, that we would stand up in the face of fear and opposition and even suffering and know with confidence and hope the one that we followed, yes, went to the cross, but he came back three days later and invites us to follow him. And so we can live with that faith and that trust knowing that there's nothing that can stop your kingdom from coming. And so we live in confidence because of that. In the name of Jesus, we pray.